and this is the reason for time episode six, a podcast about memory, truth, invention, and how they came together in a novel. You'll eventually understand the reason for the title. As for time itself, even if Albert Einstein did say that time is just an illusion, it's an illusion that is useful, especially in the creation of a story. As I think I have already mentioned, I am someone who feels my way into a book. It takes a while. I try this and that, make files for different characters, throw a few ideas into them, go back, think some more. The reason for time was more structured from the beginning because I was constrained by the events I chose to concentrate on. That one week, beginning with the blimp crash, Early on, I created documents titled Day 1, Day 2, and so forth, and began dumping into those documents events of the days, which I got from the newspapers. Because it is an historical novel, I had to be true to the time. Even so, there were a lot of choices, and looking back through those old files on the computer and old notebooks and printouts, it's fun to see the tentative steps I took in creating the characters of Maeve and Desmond, Desmond was going to be an opinionated man, I noted. I see that I was debating, on paper, or rather on the screen, how to develop the relationship that sparked between them. I actually used a font in green. That's less sentimental Irish than it is one of the strategies I use for keeping characters distinct, to keep track of them. I wondered if Maeve would decide that Desmond's charm was going to wear off, that he'd get fat and mouthy. Opinions lose their edge after they've been repeated for a lifetime. I see that I had Desmond attracted to her independence. In my notes, I also had him supposing that she wouldn't be a clinger, like other girls he'd known. Remembering the Theodore Dreiser books I had read, I decided to give Desmond some of the qualities of Eugene, Dreiser's main character in The Genius. Eugene says he likes women with a bit of mouth on them, a bit of Spanish in them. As writers, we are kind of gods with the power to create and transform, like Minerva, who was offended by Arachne and so turned the expert weaver into a spider. I could make these characters whatever I wanted them to be. If I believed in them, the reader would. It's all in the power to make people believe, says Mr. R., But to believe in them myself, I needed details. Like a painter working from a photograph, I incorporated this bit from the description of what Chicago's surface lines were looking for in an employee. Chicago's surface lines was the outfit that operated the streetcars where Desmond worked. Employees were to be young, steady, sober, married, healthy, reliable, intelligent, cheerful, well-coordinated, neat-appearing, well-spoken, And I needed to know where and when May, for example, was born, what her family was like. As I said in the first episode, it was actual family history that inspired the reason for time, specifically my maternal grandmother. But I knew so little about her, that sweet woman who had walked to our house from the bus stop carrying a white box that meant glazed donuts for we kids, eventually 11 of us, too many for our parents to supply treats like that on a regular basis. 
On my first trip to Ireland, I went to Ennis in County Clare to see if I could find any documents pertaining to my grandma's past. No luck, but many interesting talks with people who wanted to please me and made up stories that had some plausibility, at least according to them. Kevin Brown, formerly of the Clare Champion, told me that the Irish don't care if a story's true as long as it's a good one. I had no choice but to invent a life for Maeve, so I returned to Ennis a second time, wondering what I could base on the setting. I noted the view of the Fergus River from one of the bridges, and in the book I used a description close to what I wrote in my notebook back then. The running brown water with its ridges and swells had looked to me like the backs of brown animals. So I have Maeve make that same observation. The tumbling down friary, the church. I also have her remember the sound of a wicked gate, the squeak as it opened. But that's a detail I got from a documentary about two women who were switched at birth. When she discovered her actual origins, one of the women stood at the gate of the house that would have been hers, and she swung the squeaky gate open and shut many times. I would have heard that sound every day, she said. It would have been part of me. I knew that my grandma had been poor, and I knew that she'd written Connor in the space for her father's name on my mother's birth certificate, which, as you remember, was the only family birth certificate I was able to find. In my notes for Maeve, I speculated that her father had been hurt in a work accident on the railway. I found that there was a railway he might have helped build in the time, and the limp he ended up with distinguished him as a character in her memory. But there was something else, another memory borrowed from someone else. As far as our own rather sketchy family history goes, I'd heard that my paternal great-grandfather Thomas Burns had a book that he wrote in. We are not the kind of family who has neatly kept files that go back generations with documents in perfect order. Like the remark about the streetcar conductor, the news about my great-grandfather came as an aside in a conversation I had with an aunt I thought might tell me more. I wonder what happened to his book, she said. He used to write in a book, a journal, I supposed, and as well as possibly containing a family record, maybe there were notes or ideas, thoughts expressed on being an immigrant in America. If so, I never read what he thought because no one could ever figure out what happened to the book. I liked the idea of the book, though, so I decided to give Maeve's father, Connor, that same habit of writing in a book. Here's Ethel. She'd be wondering what was keeping me, Margaret, and how would I explain the delay and the bag said the fare. Yet, seeing the twin towers of St. Pat's, I stepped off the car before my usual stop. In the street, the children were glazing their bare arms with the leavings of ice from the free deliveries Mayor Thompson ordered to relieve people couldn't get out of the city or even out of their rooms. A horse had folded his legs under himself right in the cobblestones, and all the dogs were splayed out in the patches of shade the walls of the church threw on the sidewalk. My conscience guided me around them dogs and in. Not novena night, but because dim and cooler than the stoops of the tenements, people, mostly old ones, 
bent over in scattered pews counting their rosary beads. No priest waited in his box for confessors, not that I planned to confess, not then, for I was having the old argument with him. The nuns would say Jesus puts temptation in our way to test us, but you could also say he's offering an opportunity, same as going all the way back home, he sent the mission sisters into our schoolroom, opened my mind to the possibilities his poor life offered. Same as he gave me the wit to use a typewriter, same as he planted the idea of this city in my mind and saw to it that people sent money in their envelopes to the mission school. If Margaret and me had never gone with the nuns, if I'd stuck to scullery work, if folks had sent their donations to the archdiocese as they were supposed to instead of directly to the mission, if Packy hadn't caught the flu, the if chain linked back to the day my da and my mammy came together in ways they never talked about, though theirs made a true life love story if ever there was one. I would describe every bit, for there's no shortage of paper, and I came upon the habit of writing things down after watching my dad lick the end of his pencil and scribble away, raising his craggy face to think a bit, then continuing, the book of his on his knee and him bent as he had been bent since the accident on the railroad and me barely in school. Most tennis men drank themselves away from their families. With my da it was a dreaming took him, Mammy said. You might as well be off with the others for your nightly jar, Connor. You're as gone as they are anyway. Praise be, it doesn't cost us anything but your attention. Da, hurrying her say that, let his pencil drop and hobbled over to where she sat on her straw-bottomed chair by the hearth, where she sits in my memory, her skin browning from the peat smoke, her eyes shining like bright blue stones on a road in the moonlight. He tugged her up, though she resisted, and took her into his arms and steered her around the square of earth and floor in a pretend dance, though the wheezing and the sleep whining of us all provided the only music. Then he paraded her to their bed, where I heard more protesting, before I pushed my face above my sister Margaret's shoulder to see him on his bent arm, kissing her. Drops of rain blew in under the chimney cap. I shut my eyes and nodded off to the dependable rhythm of the torrent, restless and troubled with feelings I did not recognize. After the accident, he could have stayed away, joined the other men, drawing away the hours at a cottage down the road between Mill Street and playing games to jip each other out of a drink. But he was soft, I was, and the butt of other men's jokes because of it. It's them sure made me who I am, the firstborn, bold as one of them irons at the front of the car pushed anything blocking the tracks out of its way. I promised to pay it back somehow what I took, slip some bills into an envelope and mail them to the person scribbled a return address. It was a promise came from my heart and would write the sin, the promise of money and daily prayers for the sake of the suffering, all this to the virgin in her sapphire cloak, studded with golden stars, for the virgin seemed more understanding. The virgin, who kept her title though she gave birth, had to understand how it could be for a girl alone in the city, and all she needed, and wouldn't a man make it a better life, and wouldn't it be grand to see him coming in the door every night from his workers' ball games? We'd certainly have a nicer home than the one Margaret and me shared at Bridie's. Maybe I'd be blessed some day, like them saw tears falling down the painted faces of statues. It was something I dreamed of seeing, a real sign from the Virgin knew I did my best to be good. But nothing that evening. Only the snort of a shrunken one in the last pew, no doubt exhausted from climbing the steps and shouldering open the heavy door, 
All he could do to save himself from the heat took the lives of the weakest every summer since I'd been there. Terrible. Isn't it human nature, then, to take advantage of what opportunities appear right in front of you? Wouldn't it be as much as a slap in the face of God, or fate, or the good people, to turn your back on them? Margaret sat on the front steps, watching the children at their skipping games, watching something, anything, as she waited, like the whole city, for a wind to blow up or the temperature to fall. It's gone to the periwinkle hour of evening, not quite dark, but promising, and neighbors perched on the steps of every house I pass, still in my work duds and clutching the bag with my pocketbook up against my chest. It was not so big, the package, that my sister would spy it right off. I wanted to slip on the costume and admire myself in a scrap of mirror, but it would have to wait. I patted the top of her head and promised to return after I used the lav, which I did, but first hid the bag with the costume in the same place I kept my writing book. Harry's out tonight, then, is he? He's on with the Teamsters, them deciding what they're going to do if the yards go out again this week. Your fellow stand you up, May. Tomorrow we're meeting, not tonight, and good thing for it, too, because I need to wash this shirtwaist and pray it dries overnight. Or something lighter. I have a flower you could wear at your neck. Is he handsome, Maeve? Do you like his looks? I laughed at her curiosity, yet I'd have been the same. He's ordinary handsome, the nose a little big and sunburned. That much was true. I didn't go on about the dimples in his cheek, or sure she'd know. Show me the flower when we're up again. Have you had your supper? Food filled my thoughts every minute of some days, and other days like that when I forgot I had a stomach. But I couldn't tell Margaret so. Instead, I packed another fib into that ever-weightier valise I carried in my conscience and told her I hadn't much of an appetite because of the heat and working late and all. Bridie got the ice today, and I left a bit of cheese in her box. Do you think we'll ever sleep at all? We will, Megsy Pegs, when it's cooler. I will help myself to the cheese, and then we'll stroll over to the park and look at the people. The prospect of a change from Bridie's stoop distracted her from any more questions about my date, and anything else might make me swarm. But I swore that if Desmond kept his promise and we agreed to meet again, I'd insist I would on inviting my sister along. And if she asked why I fibbed, I wouldn't confess it was because the sight of Mr. Desmond Malloy caused my heart, or something in that vicinity, to melt same as a candy in the sun, but explain it's because I know she feared water as much as me, and didn't think much of carmen in general, and probably less now they threatened to walk off the job. Maybe she would understand, instead of scolding me about the kind of life I'd be opening myself to, me who'd come so far and worked so hard for my share of Bridie's room and shows as often as we could get to them and the papers and what dime novels I could buy or borrow from the girls at work where we soiled our fingers with ink beneath lamps that jumped and swung on account of blasting going on underground or far away or some spell Mr. R. was after casting to keep us girls alert. When Riverview had opened for the season earlier that summer, Harry trying to help me fill the gap opened when Packy died, proposed we make a day of it with one of his pals from the packing plant. I screamed on the roller coaster along with the thick-fingered fellow whose words I could barely make out. Him as if talking with stuffing in his mouth, me being more of a listener than a talker, yet still unable to make out much of it, trying to avoid touching, though the coaster and later the tilt-a-whirl threw me right up against him, 
Mary and Joseph, the fellow stank of Packer's blood and man's sweat, and Dadney then on and found himself some cologne to try to smother it. When I threw up the hot dog he treated us to, they all thought it was the ride that made me sick. Thanks to Ethel Witte, Alley Impressive Chicago, Harris Dixon, and the incomparable Scott Joplin, whose music you are hearing now. For more information, visit The Reason for Time on Facebook. You can find the book on the virtual shelves of any online bookstore, or better yet, do your part to support independence. If you're in Seattle, visit Elliott Bay Books, for example, or order it from your local library. If it takes a little longer, just remember what Einstein said about time being an illusion. Next week, I'll tell you about how I discovered I wasn't the only writer interested in that week in Chicago. I'm Mary Burns. Thanks for listening.